Hello and welcome to the Breaking the Guard podcast with your hosts Robert Drysdale and myself, David Avalon. This is our fifth episode and in today's episode we're talking about crayonche, the famous term that was coined by Grandmaster Carlson Gracie. And if you don't know what a crayonche is, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> but generally, crayonche is used to essentially slander somebody or denigrate somebody that has left a team and switched to a new team. A traitor, a backstabber. This is the term, this is what crayonche is used for. So me and Rob are going to talk a little bit more about the origins, the problems, and the reasons uh, why this term exists. And it, it stems from problems on both sides, from the coach and to the athlete. Along the way, we'll also talk about different training regimens, altitude training, using training masks, and the variations of intensity of training between wrestling programs, jiu-jitsu, and MMA programs. So if that sounds interesting, stay tuned. Before we get started, I'd like to mention one of our sponsors, which is the Front Headlock Series. The Front Headlock Series is an excellent instructional course that's covering one of the most fundamental positions in classical wrestling, which is, of course, the front headlock. It, essentially, a front headlock is whenever you entangle the head and an arm inside the grip. And it's pretty much one of the best clinches that you can use in fighting because you're in a totally dominant position where it's one of the few positions where you cannot be struck at. I mean, the person stuck in the front headlock can't really hit you and you can barrage them with knees, you can sprawl, you can take them down, you can go for submission chokes like anaconda or darts chokes, kimuras. So there's a lot of cool stuff you can do from there. So whether you're just a pure you know, a high school wrestler and you want to get better or you're a jiu-jitsu guy and you want to learn how to use a takedown series that doesn't require you to shoot in, which I know there's a lot of you that fear getting guillotined or getting front headlocked yourself when you shoot in for a takedown. Or if you're a heavyweight and you have bad knees, you don't want to drop to your knee. This is the takedown series for you because with a good front headlock, you're going to be a very good counterfighter and you'll also learn how to set it up without relying on your opponent making a mistake. And of course, this applies to the submission game as well and particularly for MMA is another really strong option. So make sure you check out the course, which also has free videos for people who are interested in learning more about it. You can go to frontheadlock.com. Again, that's frontheadlock.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode five of the Breaking the Guard podcast. I am Robert Dreisel here with my co-host, David Avalan. And uh, we got lots to talk about today. Like we kind of try to pick our topics, uh, basically anything we find interesting, anything like that's somewhat controversial within the BJJ or grappling community, anything that will get people thinking or, you know, disagreeing on. And um, we had a couple topics that we wanted to talk about today. One of them was the use of PEDs in uh, professional sports. And the other one was the Creonchi. Yeah. So we're going to talk about creonchi, creontage. Yeah, it's, a, it's an invented word in Portuguese. I'm not sure it has like a root. I think Brazilians invented it. But uh, it's, uh, it's basically like a trader, right? Someone who leaves the gym and like you're training with instructor X and tomorrow you leave to instructor Y. And that creates a lot of animosity. If you've been in, B in BJJ for more than a year or two, you're probably familiar with this <laughs> at some point. At least someone you have know has, has, I mean, 
I think we've all been there. But so we're going to talk about that first. Um, Dave, any th- you want to you want to kickstart a conversation? Yeah, you know, um, there's been a lot of talk about PEDs lately, and uh, I think a long time. This is, I, mean, this is, long I think it, it, it's the conversation spikes. I feel like it spikes and then it dies yeah. and then it spikes Every again. Every time there's and, some controversy, yeah. or something gets popped, yeah. it all roars up again. In my head, that I guess the most recent one was uh, Dillashaw. I, I, in my mind, because he was actually caught with EPO and that yeah. with uh, steroids or HGH or whatever. And I guess that was I. I think that was like the first instance in MMA where they of caught EPO? somebody with EPO. I don't know I'm enough not, I'm about sure he's it. Not the I first. think it's harder to catch. I think yeah. that's one reason. Why. I don't know enough about it to be able to, to say for sure, but. I think that's reasonable. It's funny because, like, normally when you think of any kind of performance-enhancing substance, you think of a heavyweight. You very rarely see the lightweights because one one feature of like anabolics is that it will put weight on you. EPO doesn't, obviously. So that's the. Uh, um, I mean that that would work for a lightweight, I suppose. Fucking a man. <laughs> it's the po- It's the it's the it's the alarm for the podcast because I thought it would have been two thirty. <laughs> it's yeah. all good. Uh, all right, continue. So. Yeah, so uh, you know what EPO does to the body, right, Dave? Like it basically increases your red blood cell count. Red blood cell carries oxygen from your lungs to your muscles. So you're basically uh, constantly supplying your muscles with more oxygen than they would normally have, right? These levels, obviously, they vary from individual to individual. If you live in a place of high altitude, let's say you live in the, you know, in, in Bolivia or something, you're going to be, you're going to have naturally a higher production of red blood cells, right? So that basically increases your performance because basically you can, it's like having more gas in your tank, basically. Yeah, yeah I know a lot of people actually who uh, train in altitude tents, yeah. you know, where obviously like I was in Miami and we're sea level, yeah. zero altitude, but uh, you can get these tents that essentially change the atmosphere a little yeah. bit. It's not a perfect representation because you're just lowering the density of a uh, of oxygen versus how it would be when you're in atmosphere, yeah. but it, it's supposed to make some marked improvement. I know yeah. some UFC athletes that use that as well. Uh, and a common misconception is people, they try to train at high altitude, or I think they call it hypoxic, hypoxia, where you're yeah. essentially, they have the altitude mask yeah. or not, not even altitude mask, they just have the little training mask, which yeah. has like three little holes, like straws. Yeah. And uh, from what I understand, that's actually counterproductive. It doesn't do anything physically to yeah. increase your uh, red blood cell count because uh, all you're doing there is limiting the amount of air you can breathe. Yeah. And what triggers the increase of uh, red blood cells or hemoglobin that absorbs yeah. iron and whatnot is that the density of the oxygen in the air that you're breathing. Yeah. It's, it's it's a long term thing. The reason yeah. people in Bolivia have it, it's not just that they're genetically predisposed to have it because of multiple generations being in that environment, but also because from a very young age they have less oxygen. Yes. So that's like it's all, if every day of your life you have less oxygen, your body, you know, boosts your red blood cell count to counter for that, right? Yeah, and it uh, takes months to build oh, I, that. Like I, with your yeah, training, I, yeah. It, it takes months to build. It. It's imagine. not going to be a few days. So if you're on a hyperbetic chamber, basically, you're getting like eight hours out of the day when you're sleeping in it. Where yeah. you're probably increasing it somewhat. I just don't know how significant it would be. Um, I will say one thing about the master. I think for red blood cell count purposes, you're right because you're only wearing it for however long your training lasts. Let's say you're you're, you're doing conditioning for. When with a mask on, probably like 15 minutes tops if you're doing something hard, you know? Yeah. But what it does do, and this is one reason I, I, I would use it, I don't think it does a thing for red blood cell count. 
it does for very well-conditioned athletes, it raises the bar even further. So for example, what it does is because you're getting less oxygen, your body releases lactic acid to make up for it. So lactic acid is almost like a reserve tank of your gas tank. So you run out of gas, now you go in the reserve tank. So with the, and, and that releases lactic acid. Lactic acid is the pump you feel in your forearms. If you get that, that, that nasty taste in your mouth when you're grappling and really tired and you want to spit it out, that's lactic acid, right? And basically what you want to do is you want to replace that with oxygen as fast as possible. The better condition you are, the faster your body replaces that lactic acid with oxygen. You don't get your muscles pumped. That's why, hence why condition is so important. Why you gas out, you feel that pump in your hand when you're tired, right? Uh, but, um, you know, what, what happens is you want to make sure that your, your, your lactic acid input is not, it's not, if it's too high, your, your performance is going to suffer. What the mask will do, it's going to push that threshold of lactic acid accumulation a lot faster. So the athlete gets used to dealing with the replacement of lactic acid with oxygen with very little oxygen. So I'll give you an example, like Max, right? Yeah. It's hard to get Max tired. Like I've done conditioning with him, like the kind of stuff that would break most people after like two minutes, three minutes, he's going, he recovers extremely fast. So we're considering using the mask with him because I'm having a hard time getting this kid tired. And that's a good thing, but I feel like you never, no matter how hard your conditioning is, it's so hard to replicate a fight because in the fight, you always go that extra mile, yeah. you know? So it's the only situation I can see like the mask making sense, but I'm with you. It doesn't increase your red blood cell. You don't wear it long enough. It doesn't make sense. Right. No, and the other thing too is that uh, people who are proponents of altitude training, the idiom they use is you sleep high, train low. Yeah. Right? Because you want to be resting at high altitude yeah. because you're not going to be able to, if I get the same athlete and put him in a high altitude, have him do sprints and then put him at low altitude yeah. and do sprints, he's going to do way better on low altitude, which means he's putting more effort out. So you're not going to be able to work as hard at high altitude. Yeah. So your training is going to suffer as a consequence. Yeah. And what increases the red blood cell count is not how hard you're working. It's just yeah. time. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense to train in high altitude because yeah. you're not going to be able to push yourself and get those intensity peaks that you So I, I think when it comes to training, I like to – training to me, it has to be like very – and this goes for everything. You very – you hyper-focus on certain traits, right? So for example, if you're working your cardio, you have to hyper-focus on that aspect of your condition or power, whatever it is. Um, Trade, dude, because martial arts is about learning, I think it's different. I think a lot of conditioning coaches, this is a beef I have with a lot of conditioning coaches, is they come from like a college background, right? And if you look at like, they, they come, they, they know all the research they, they've studied, it's primarily from sports like football, basketball, powerlifting, and that's great. But they, they come with these models that are based off of football and other sports, or swimming maybe, because they're more, they've had government funding and research for decades. There's a lot of research on sports like swimming and powerlifting and whatnot. Those are Olympic sports. And they try to, you know, kind of fit that kind of template into fighting. And it's so different because fighting is learning-based. So I think the, prime, the, the, the overwhelming majority of your workouts should be learning, which means that if I break you in five minutes, let's say I could probably break you physically in 10 minutes if I have you like jumping and flipping tires yeah. and do okay? Well, how much did you learn? Like, so let's say you could roll with that intensity in 10 minutes. How much did you actually learn? You got tired and that's great but you're better off at a slower pace with a two-hour session because you're going to learn a lot more at the end, right? But for training purposes, you have to mix it up. This is how we're doing with Max now. We mix it up like once a week. We have a brutal session. This is not about learning. This is not about your cardio or your power. This is about breaking you physically once a week. I'm so tired you can't walk. This is going to be – we're trying to make it harder than the fight. 
Now you can't make that your camp because that's insane. You're yeah. going to die. That's not normal. You're not going to learn anything if you just train like that. But at the same time, some of these guys, and I've seen how some of these physiologists that come from like, you know, the grad students from greater universities, they come over to train as MMA fighters and they're measuring everything in your body. And I'm watching the workout. I'm like, that guy's not tired. Oh no, he's done for the day. I'm like, he's not tired. He could have gone another 30 minutes. Of, but they, they swing all the way towards all these, uh, um, a lot of sophisticated uh, data and, 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 and exercise and all that, but they're not pushing the guys. There's that, that hard yeah. push you get in wrestling. We were talking about this a while ago. Yeah. You don't get that, man, in some of these, like, some of these conditioning coaches. Like, man, you're going to gas out unless you get pushed that threshold at least once a week. Yeah, and the, the wrestling cardio that wrestlers have comes from that intense push, yeah. right? Like, they, I, honestly, like, some of the best shape I've ever been was probably when I was in high school. Yeah, you mentioned kinda, that. Yeah. It's kind of sad to say. No, do I believe you? <laughs> it wasn't a yeah. professional, yeah. but it's just how hard they push you, yeah. and you really need someone to take you to that yeah. that level. It's hard to have that self discipline on yourself yeah. to go. Okay, I'm going to try to kill myself yeah. in training. Like it's really, really difficult. And yeah. as hard, even if you're super disciplined, as hard as you push yourself, the coach will get you a little different. Yeah, naturally, they can yeah. always yeah. push you past your your point of comfort. Okay, so do this. Do me a favor. Can you describe what a work is like? I I I've heard you tell me this before, but I, I want them to hear from you. What is it like? The, the the sort of intensity we're describing? Because I think if you've been BJJ or MMA for a while, you know what we're talking about. But a lot of times, the people that come from other backgrounds, right, they don't comprehend it. Because I've seen like going back to other sports, I've seen like professional football players do conditioning. I've done conditioning right next to them. I'm watching them I'm like. It's like my day off. Yeah. They do like a 30-second sprint and rest for a minute. I'm like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> but like there's a lot of that in some of these sports because the same intensity you get from wrestling. I believe wrestlers are the best athletes in the world. Next to MMA fighters maybe. Like they're, yeah. they're phenomenal shape and you have to be. Describe that push, Dave. So I'll tell you the typical – and mind you, this is a high school yeah. wrestling practice. Uh, it was run by a Lock Haven wrestler. And Lock Haven is a really good wrestling yeah. program. And my coach is a little bit – Intense because he just graduated and went straight. To oh, there's a reason why you remember him, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Tearsell, if you're out there, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, pretty much, we would start every day with an Indian run, which essentially is a three mile run, and it's like two lines, and the guy at the back of the line has to sprint to the front, and you and you and you're jogging the whole time as it's going. So oh. it's like intermittent sprinting. With a fast-paced oh, job. How many people? I'm just curious. Uh, probably about 20 people, so two lines of 10. Oh, you're sprinting the whole time. You're, you're pretty, you got like essentially 10 seconds between each sprint, you know what I mean? Oh, so, and, yeah. you, and the whole time you're jogging on a good clip, you know? And our coach made sure because not like, a lot of coaches are not in the training with you. Yeah. Tierso was leading the, the pace. He was jogging. He was jogging, so he was a pace leader. So he was the only guy who was not That's sprinting. hard to do. We're going to yeah. talk about that at some point because that's yeah. really hard to do. Yeah. So it's like you can't talk shit either because like he's doing it. <laughs> he's doing it. He's probably like 30 years old than you too. Yeah. yeah. And then he's like, boom, 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 boom. He's going. Then he was young. He was probably like 25 or something. Okay. That's not yeah. bad. So that's young for a coach. Yeah. Young. He's really, that's why I said yeah. he's a really yeah. young coach. So I think the training was really hard because it was like he just finished getting this done to him and then yeah. he like kind of translated it because we had a team that started with like 60 something people. At the end of the season, there was like 10. He just weeded everybody. That's yeah, a selection process. Yeah, yeah. That's what. That's, that's not normal. This is a, for a ro the regular roster for a wrestling uh, high school. I think it's thirteen. So we didn't even have enough for a full roster. Right. Yeah, but the thing is, like, I think one we're gonna have this discussion as well. Like, as we talk, like our minds, like my mind goes all over the place. But that is one reason why wrestlers are such dominant athletes in MMA 
to me, yeah, the technique and the hard work, and I get that. But people don't realize the selection process that goes on from a very young age, weeding out the unathletic kids and like sticking like the best athletes in high school are the ones that are going to get a college scholarship. And yeah. those, the best athletes, it's a pyramid, right? Like the Soviets did this. This is a pyramid. You end up with the best athletes in the country. So yeah, like you, you, by the time you finish, if you like, if you're an NCAA all-star American, you're one of the best athletes in the country. Like yeah. you're extremely, naturally extremely, you wouldn't have made it that far Correct. had you not been an outstanding athlete. Correct. Yeah. yeah and, and the level jumps are significant going from like, you can get someone who was like the middle school state champion. Yeah. He means nothing in high school. Yeah. And I remember there was one of the guys I went to a camp in Minnesota, a lot, uh, we call it the Jay Robinson 28 day intensive camp, right? So in there, one of the counselors uh, was one of the wrestlers at uh, Minnesota, and he was a five time national champion in high school, right? Which means like he entered in as a freshman, and uh, I think he was wrestling since eighth grade, ninth, 10th, 11, 12, won every time. So the kid was a stud, right? Not just state level, national. So as a high school, he's like unstoppable. When he got into the college room, he couldn't take anybody down, not even like the third stringer. In the, wow. And he had some man, he was like mentally crushed. He was not used to losing, he was probably. He was, yeah, he was not used to losing, yeah. not even able to score a point, like not one point. Like he was getting destroyed. And he was like at the breaking point where he was about to quit. He's like, man, like he didn't know what was going on with him. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he got his first breakthrough. He got one point. Yeah. And then like everything started to stack. But so like, and then if you go from that level to then world-class level then it's a whole nother level I, i've heard that yeah. collegiate wrestlers going into like olympic training centers and like it's like a notch above that you yeah. know it's also the rule difference as well because yeah there's all that so i i, I don't I, I believe it or not i don't know wrestling <laughs> like but like i know the freestyle and the collegiate i know the collegiate style folk style is a little more grappling wise right they, yeah there's the a lot more leg riding like, and yeah so the, the main difference between like uh international wrestling versus folk style wrestling folk style wrestling your goal is to pin the guy, but there's also an emphasis on the bottom guy. If he's on his, if he gets taken down, he's on his force. He has to get back up to his feet. They will not restart the match, no matter how long you're holding him down. In international wrestling, if I'm down for like 10 seconds and nothing's happening, they start us back up. So pretty much in order to keep the guy down in international wrestling, you have to turn him. Yeah. And if there's no turn within 10, 15 seconds, boom, back up to your feet. So the bottom guy doesn't have to practice how to stand up. Gotta practice staying flat. Just staying flat. So he doesn't learn any escapes. Interesting. Sports. And then the top yeah. guy doesn't really have to work breakdowns. Yeah. Because in folk style wrestling, you constantly have to be bringing the guy back to the mat. Yeah. Call yeah. mat returns, right? Yeah. So there are two skill, pivotal skills for fighting that are they lost. They don't exist in Olympic. Or and that's like, why yeah. there's a lot of criticism like uh, Yo Romero is like, how come people stand up all the time? Because he's not training in a style where it requires him to control people. Yeah. He's great at putting people in their ass, yeah. but he doesn't do a good job of holding them down because he's not world-class at that level. And, and my guess would be that the, 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 the folk-style wrestlers would learn jiu-jitsu a lot faster, too. Because, like, they, of the, from my experience, collegiate wrestlers, it's like, I, the, one, the good ones, to me, they were, they're black belts at everything, minus submissions and fighting off their back. Yeah. It's true. Other than yeah. that, like they're black bolts at everything. Everything else they do, they know. They they, they kind of know how to pass. They got amazing balance. They got the takedowns down, and what they're missing is the submission, and then you know fighting off your back. But like they 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 know how to they know how to grapple. Like and I've wrestled with, oh I've grappled with like Olympic wrestlers, 
and yeah. they come from that international background you're talking about, and it's different. Yeah. They'll sit on their knees and they're not really grabbing your head. And if you, they don't know how to go to the back, whereas like a, like a collegiate wrestler knows how to leg ride. Like he'll, it's, it's a back attack. You're attacking the yeah. back just like in, not with the point of choking, of pinning obviously, but there's a lot more, it's a lot more jujitsu-like it feels like. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think the skills are very practical. They translate yeah. really well, particularly the skill of pinning. Yeah. Pinning is underutilized, I think, in, in jujitsu. Yeah. In MMA, they've been doing it, but not to the extent where I think it could be exploited. Yeah. But uh, coming back around to the wrestling training and uh, yeah. the practice, so we would do that three-mile Indian run. Then we would go inside and we would start our wrestling practice. And then the wrestling practice, you would do your warm-ups. And anybody who's done jiu-jitsu warm-ups, it's very similar, you know, circle inside, outside. Not too difficult, but then they all start doing sprints or you start doing, like, explosive jumps or whatnot get your heart racing again then you go into technique uh drilling i'm sorry so it might be another 15 30 minutes of just drilling doing double legs doing uh stand-ups anything and usually they try to chain them like you'll drill two skills together maybe i take you down and then you work reversing or i take you down I like and you get that, back yeah. up to your feet so like we build sequences yeah versus just standalone moves and uh then there'll maybe be like 30 minutes of technique work going over new techniques and then the rest is going to be more live a lot of situational drills usually based off the technique start from the head inside single yeah. leg finish it right other guys working yeah. the escapes and uh some live work and then more cardio at the end like you'll yeah. do sprints or, so it's a two three hour practice two, three hours yeah. and that's when you're done that's it and you're done uh generally people are also training either doing weightlifting outside of that or they're doing running in the morning. It's like I was doing that. It's a lot. Yeah, I mean, in high school, I think it would be like, people don't realize when you're that young how much easier it is to recover and how your body's intact. Yeah. You have like, I get deja vu grappling sometimes because I've been in a situation where I really hurt myself. So like I hesitate because like I have like deja vus in my head. Like I've been here before. I've hurt myself last time. Hesitate. Yeah. Whereas if you're like 15, 16, your body's like, you're like Wolverine. So you just like run through a wall and it's like nothing. But I... I, I like, and I've trained like that. Uh, what you're describing to me, is, it's ironic because when I started training, BJJ is a very young sport in comparison to wrestling. Like if you look at how many papers are written on wrestling versus BJJ, when that, that answers you how evolved both these sports are as, as arts, right? Like yeah. how evolved they are. Wrestling's light years ahead in a number of ways, but I feel that when I started training, like practice was in a certain way. And I've been, I've been watching this evolution of, of how BJJ progress, how training methodology pro progresses, and it's becoming a lot more similar to what you're describing. Yeah. Um, I mean, for myself, like, yes, I do, like, chain movements. I didn't learn it that way, but, like, I work on chain, sometimes three, four sequences for both, both you know, partners, so they're both interacting. The drilling that I see in BJJ, I think it's it, a lot. First of all, there was no drilling, and then there was a drilling that I don't like. I think it's a waste of time. It's kind of like drilling with a dead body. Like you literally yeah, put a yeah. dummy on the floor, and it would be the same thing. I'm like, I, don't, I think that's not realistic. You're not learning anything. You're just burning energy and wasting your time. But then there's a kind of wrestling-like drilling that's like semi-live. Yes. Like we're moving, and I'm like, because then you're learning timing, movement. It's realistic because your opponent gives you a little feedback, right, versus them just falling down the second you touch them. And that's what I've been gravitating towards. So, like, I've been watching. I feel like other schools are beginning to do this, and it's interesting because even though BJJ and wrestling, there's, to me, there are more similarities than differences. Like, people focus a lot on the differences, but no one pays attention to similarities. And yeah. when you look at the similarities, like, they're very similar. Sure. And then it's interesting to how see the methodology becomes more and more alike. 
because it's a process of selection, right? Like this stuff is not working. Let's do more of this. And eventually I think that will end up very, very similar to like a collegiate wrestling practice for the competitive BJJ at least. Yeah. And I think it's just, like you said, the evolution of the sport as more people are doing it and as there's more money flowing into it as well. Um, because wrestlers that come in are generally already athletes. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people in the old days that were doing jiu-jitsu, even MMA, weren't athletes. Yeah. They were just tough guys. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, so now you're starting to see pretty much everybody in the UFC yeah. is an athlete now. There's no, like, just, you don't have Where's, <laughs> yeah. UFC 1 through 10 where you just have, like, guys with pot bellies or Tank Abbott rolling yeah. in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they, they couldn't, they wouldn't make it in today's world. Yeah. You know? Because, it's, like, it's, We've weeded out like it's a it's again it's a selection. We end up with the best, you know. But yeah, but as time develops, you know, the the training improves and yeah. people realize, oh, this is what works better. But uh, coming around, like what you were saying in other sports, that they try to adopt, like when you have sports physios, like oh, we're gonna do what we do in football and bring it. That's what they learn, right? Yeah, it's yeah. not really the same. Cause though the thing about MMA is that it uses a lot of different types of conditions, yeah. right? Because you have obviously explosive uh, bursts when you're striking or in your wrestling uh, clinches or takedowns, but then there's also lulls of action where it's kind of slow. Yeah. And then you have to burst out and then go yeah. slow. And so it, it's difficult to say like, how is like, we're like, they're still working on it. Like what's the perfect way to train to develop the cardio? And usually yeah. from what I've seen people doing, you got to do a mix of things. Yeah, it, it can't just be all sprints. Yeah, right. Uh, it can't just be all like variety of stimuli. Flow rolling yeah. stuff. Yeah. There's got to be a, a variety, and everybody's formula is slightly different yeah. depending on the style they have. So that's why I think it's very interesting because there's no cookie cutter recipe. You know, you could have someone like because we all vary yeah, too. Yeah, you could have someone like even like strategically like someone like Dam Damian Maya, is very successful. You know, and, and like people crap at him a bit, but like these three losses recently or two. Who? Colby Covington, interim champion. Usman, champion. Tyrone Woodley, champion. Yeah. And they beat him by, like, pointing him out. You know, they, yeah. nobody destroyed and, him. And Damien's yeah. 40. Yeah. He's 40 years old. And he's There's a guy that. essentially, like... <laughs> Fought for the title twice. Yeah. An impressive resume. You know, and so he's not the most athletic guy. I know Damien well. Train with him. He's not, mm -hmm. he's not the fastest or strongest guy. But uh, it, with him, it's really mental more than anything. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, like, it's, it's very impressive what he has done. Yeah. You know? And he's a guy who's pretty much went the pure grappling route yeah. with some stand-up. You know? So, uh, a lot of the people are going more stand-up with the wrestling yeah. to nullify the ground game. Yeah. You know? But there's a lot of ways that people can win with this. So, the conditioning is going to be different depending on your style. Yeah. You know? So, I, and, and according to your weaknesses, too, I feel like people naturally have predispositions, which is interesting that the people that had natural good cardio love to jog, and the people who are naturally explosive love to like power lift. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, you really, this is where discipline kicks in with me. Discipline is not doing something every day, discipline is doing what you hate. That's what discipline yeah. is, yeah. you know? And like, if you have a weakness, that's what you got to work on. Like, there are things that I've always been, we mentioned this a while ago, I'm, I've always been flexible. Yeah, I could stretch, but that's not going to make me, you know, um, I mean, it's going to prove me this much. Whereas, like, I, my lactic acid tolerance has never been very high. So, like, I need that kind of conditioning we were describing earlier. That's what, but, like, that's what I should be leaning towards. Yeah. But that's where coach comes in because if you leave it to me, I'm always going to lean towards the things. Like, I love rolling jujitsu. That's yeah. easy. I, get, I don't even call it discipline showing up to the gym every day. It's so fun. Yeah. I love it, you know. <laughs> but, like, running sprints uphill, I hate it. And I very few moments in my life I had a coach yelling at me, and I always performed better. 
this is like really where I think the coach excels. It's like sometimes it's less technique, to be honest. It's more just that figure there that you respect and trust telling you to go that extra mile. To give you that accountability. Yeah, it's, honestly, man, sometimes it's less about the technique. It's crazy to say this because like, obviously that's important, but I think there's sometimes it really is just that figure that, you know, that you above all that you trust. When he says sprint one more round, yeah. Or a mile, like you trust him, you know, and, and that right there goes a long way. Yeah, and it's, my brother and I were, for the most part, a lot of self-coached because when we went into wrestling and we finished and we started, we had an instructor for MMA for maybe like a year or two, and then he left, and then it was just me and my brother, Ronan. Yeah. Right? So a lot of times when I was conditioning or training, I would ask myself, what don't I want to do? And then... Crap. Okay, that's <laughs> <laughs> damn honesty. Yeah. But that's good, man. Yeah. Like if everyone did that, it's it's hard to do though. Like yeah. that way. That's I I've done that before, but I'll say that was less than one percent one percent of my practices. Yeah. I feel like ninety nine percent of the time I just gravitated towards the things that I like to do, and it's, it's a flaw. But yeah. I, it, for us, like I know, like when I came up, a lot of my tr thinking translated into jujitsu MMA terms because wrestling. When I I read a book. It was called Wrestle to Win by this Olympic coach, BZ Hendricks. And it was like a basic sports psychology book that I have incorporated into everything I do now. Because it was very simple. It was like maybe 80 pages. Yeah. It's out of print now. You can't find it anywhere. But it was super good. But one of the things that it started with me early was game planning. Like he, his advice, okay, develop a game plan. What's your plan A? Then if that doesn't work, what's plan B? Then what's plan C? Yeah. And it, it taught me to train drilling sequences like you know you were talking earlier about like uh, a lot of people just do they drill and i'm like that's not drilling right because you're talking yeah you can't talk when you're drilling because yeah, you're, um, you're drilling I, the way i've i've always talked about this but there's four ways there's like a learning cycle yeah. that i call it like four steps and the, the step one is observation right like before i can learn something i have to observe it in action you know so generally we're in a classroom environment you're teaching a technique i'm observing you teach that technique and that's where I, I start to internalize the concept of what this thing is I'm going to learn. The second step is practice. And to me, practice is when you have to think your way through executing a new idea or technique. Right? So, like, I learned the arm bar for you. And I'm like, okay, so I grab here and then, well, I'm doing this. Yeah, and yeah. It's awkward. It's clumsy. Yeah, yeah. But it's starting to make that idea in your head real. The third step is drilling. Now, with whatever iteration I have uh, understanding... I'm going to drill this to 100% of my ability. And my opponent, we might orchestrate a sequence where we go back and forth, light resistance, but I'm doing it 100% of my ability. It's the most difficult part of learning, in my opinion, is you, because the drilling part is what's going to build speed, proficiency, timing. Yeah. The final step is sparring or live combat. And that step is your feedback loop. Yeah. Because now you're going to get someone who's actually resisting you and it's going to plug back in. After you finish that match, you're going to look back in your memory and observe yeah. what went wrong, what went right. Practice out the mistake. Now drill really? a new iteration. Try again. Spar and feedback, yeah. right? It seems like to me you're describing a scientific method. <laughs> when you said uh, first step, you said observation. I'm like, oh, I know that. Because it's kind of what you're doing, though, yeah. because you have that, that, that trial phase, and then you have your theory at the end, and then if the theory is no good, you observe why it's wrong, 
start all over again and correct it, yeah. right? And that's how you evolve. That's the process of evolution there. And and uh, I, I I have dude, I, I think exactly I never put it like that, like those four steps, but it's exactly what I'm looking at. One thing I like a lot going back to the drilling, and I've been doing this more and more with my students, I recommend it, is having it's tra- teaching the other party to be a good training partner to give you the correct feel. So if I'm drilling with you, let's say a double leg, I want you to resist 30, 40% intensity. Do exactly what you would do when you go live, no power, no speed. Because then you give me the reactions I can expect when I go live. Because the worst thing is for you to drill a move and because you're mad, or you practice a move in a certain way and then you're doing something I didn't know you were gonna do, I'm, I'm surprised by your resistance or by your reaction. I go, oh, I don't know what to do now. All oh, that move doesn't work. Yeah. Where it's a way of getting your student used to the reaction they're going to feel, they're going to encounter when they go live. It's also a reality check because if they're doing it wrong when there's no resistance, now they know, now they're exposed. Even at 40% resistance, their yeah. mistakes are exposed, right? And then it also, what it does is it reinforces your teaching. So if sometimes, I'm sure this has happened to you, it's happened to me a million times, where my instructor would give me a move or a detail and I go like, that's stupid. Why does he do it like that? Why don't I do it this way? Because I know, right? I'm a blue belt. I know everything. So I would do things my own way and I kind of ignore, you know. But when you're, when you're met with, with real resistance, you immediately understand why your coach gave you that detail. That's when the detail makes sense. And it's when it makes sense that you go, oh, got it, right? I'm the kind of person, maybe you are, a lot of people are like that. They, I have to learn by failure. Like, that's the best way for me to learn. If I do something, it doesn't work. Or I, have to be, I have to understand in a in a more physical way. Because you can tell me, don't stick your arm in that triangle. I'll probably do it until you catch me three or right. four times. Yeah. And that, to me, it's the really best way of, that's the true lesson, right? And um, I think that in BJJ still, there's not enough of that. But I think, like I said, we're, we're slowly gravitating, gravitating towards that sort of training. No, I agree with the, with the drilling. It definitely has to have feedback. There has to be some resistance level. The, the partner has to put an appropriate level of resistance. Yeah. If he's like a, you know, like a dead fish, He's not giving you the right. Sometimes you can't even do the move if he's not reacting in a certain way. And uh, I think a lot of times what happens is in this learning cycle, most people just want to be at step four. Everybody loves going live. Yeah. It's the funnest part. You know, You're right. You're right. But what people don't realize, the professionals are doing most of the work in the drilling. Yeah. All the guys I know, when I would prepare for ADCC, it was 80% drilling. Yeah. I would do like live rolls like two or three times a week. It was a lot of but drilling. Let me like ask I would you do this, a practice like, where it was just an hour of me drilling yeah. one sequence. And my brother, he was my coach, so he would orchestrate like maybe a five or six step sequence where uh, I have a partner, I'm shooting a double leg, he's sprawling, goes from my back, I roll into a knee bar, he escapes, I get on top, pass the guard, yeah. he does an underhook escape, gets up to his feet, that's one rep. Now we're going to do 100 each. So let me ask you this then, because I, I, I've given this a lot of thought, and I do notice like a lot of collegiate wrestlers and judokas also, they come into BJJ and they're shocked by how much more live rolling there is over drilling. Because I have never wrestled in college or done judo for that matter, but I'm on the impression that it's like, what, 70-30, 80-20, drilling versus live. When yeah. in BJJ, it's yeah. the opposite. There's a lot Correct. more live. People, because it's fun. Everyone loves it. Yep. But I, also, I could be wrong here. This is just like a hunch. But like I think that there's another element that goes on. I think the injury ratio in sports like judo and wrestling are a lot higher than in BJJ. And because BJJ is primarily on the ground, it's more controlled. There's less impact. Yeah, you tweak a knee, you know, that happens. You know, you get cranked, hurt your neck, whatever. I, I think that one reason, I could be wrong here, just, just like a guess. I think that one reason why judokas and wrestlers drill so much is because the injury ratio goes up a lot significantly when you're standing. 
if you're on the ground, I think the injury ratio is a lot lower. I think that's one reason why there's longevity in BJJ more than in wrestling. You don't see, I mean, you see 40-year-old guys wrestling, but right. you see a lot of 40-year-old people doing BJJ because yes. the ground, there is less impact, right? So I think that could be a side effect of the drill. The lack of drilling could be the side of the fact that, yeah, rolling is more fun, true, but the injury ratio is a lot lower too. It allows for, you know, less injuries. I, I definitely agree with that, right? Like it's hard to, to wrestle, like, and you said, you don't see a lot of 40-year-olds. <laughs> well, there isn't, that's the other thing. There isn't really a place for wrestlers, if you were 40, to, like, wrestle yeah. somewhere. Like, you would go to some, like, freestyle tournaments or like that. Yeah. But they're, they're, as far as I know, there isn't, like, schools or whatnot. Because they normally out of college, they're done, you know? Yeah, and, and exactly. then you never wrestle. Like, high school for that, man. You never wrestle again. It's a short-lived... Uh, it's, it's, hence yeah. why it's so intense. Like, it, you yeah, know, it's, it's that's hard why the drama that. is, like, uh, it's much more difficult for like wrestlers to accept losses and like you'll see people bawling their eyes out myself included when i lost my last high school wrestling match he's like because you have like a finite time span yeah and you can hear wrestlers talking about like Cormier or or, or asking or whatnot but then when you go to you're fighting professionally it's like well, i'm not really time limited you know like yeah. if i lose this match it's not like i lost the final opportunity i i get back that opportunity maybe in a, in a year or two yeah. and can fight for it again. So that's your moment sure too. I think that's I guess yeah. you know it's funny we at one point we're gonna have to have this podcast just about motivation and but we talked about this before, like how it changes over time. You know, mm -hmm. like I think that like it might mean something to you. Like I feel like at a younger age it was more about honor and life and death. <laughs> you know, yeah, but yeah. as you're like for a lot not must speak for myself, but like for a lot of professional fighters at some point it becomes about money too. Yeah. So it's like it sucks that you lost that money, but you don't go home like I, you know, it's like could have made an extra million dollars right there, you know. <laughs> but like, but I, it's I really believe that at some point in, in the life of these guys, they're really looking at the paycheck. You know, you meet in the mid thirties and you got kids now. All of a sudden, it's less about your ego. It's more about oh man, I got I got a big boat that I got to pay for. You know, like I got they they it's the bills become like a significant factor in, in motivation of fighters and. Yeah, it's hard to stay motivated when the practice is that hard and if you're not getting rewarded, especially. So, like, when you're 35, 40 and you're getting paid a lot of money, it kind of makes sense to push through and it changes. Yeah. It changes over time. And again, like you said, the reasons why. Everybody that gets into fighting, at first, it's about ego. Yeah. Right? Because you're trying to prove something. Yeah. You want to be the alpha yeah, male. You yeah. want to be the alpha male. You want to prove that you're the best yeah. and you're going out there to prove yourself. But at a certain point, you'll start feeling like at least for me that i didn't have anything left to prove or that i didn't have a desire to prove myself anymore like i feel like i know what i'm capable of now there's like i could win something and it's not going to really make a big difference and once you lose that you lost a lot of fire there yeah. right so then it's like okay well why am i still fighting money yeah. like financial security or whatnot yeah. you know if i don't have any other means of making money, especially when you're one of these top fighters and you're making a couple hundred thousand dollars a, every fight, it's a big motivator. Okay, yeah. I might not care about <laughs> about it the way I used to, yeah. but the financial incentive is enough for all of Oh, no, 100%. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it changes, like, no, yeah. no, no doubt. And, um, yeah, that's, I mean, we, we have to have that, that, that conversation one of these days. Like, that's, like, a huge, I mean, we, we, I would definitely like to talk about that and, and, and more length because it's different for... It's different. It's not only the age thing, but like even like the sports. I think the reason why people train BJJ versus why they enter MMA, and I think as a result, they end up with like very, very different cultures. 
Um, speaking of this, this cultural uh, factor, this is something I, because I've, I've gravitated in BJJ in Brazil and the U.S. and in MMA only in the U.S., but I do see differences of cultures, not just between Brazil and the U.S., but like between BJJ and MMA, right? And, you know, BJJ has a foot in Brazil and kind of one in Japan too. And this kind of leads us into the Creonchi conversation I wanted to have, we, we, we were going to have initially. But the, the, the whole thing is, I, I, I'm two minds about that, man, because I've been on both sides of that fence. I'm not sure, you'll tell us how you feel about that. But these cultural differences are interesting to me because I do see the culture in BJJ changing. And I see it changing very quickly, and it's very strange to me where, you know, I'm, you get called old school for thinking in a way that to me just like it's just like standard, obvious, and like that's, I'm right. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. But like BJJ in some ways has that Japanese matrix. That's what I call it. Where it is like, you know, thank you, master. Thank you, sensei, for letting me be here on the mats and sharing your knowledge with me. I will sweep the mats before and after class. Thank you, Sesei. Can I do your laundry? <laughs> like, not that it's extremely good, but like, yeah. but that's how it is in certain environments. Like, sure. you yeah. are the boss, and every student, no matter how good they are, they're very, very respectful of that hierarchy. And in MMA, I and, and Brazilians lost some of that, but there's a lot of that that kept that stayed in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like that sort of mentality. And then, like MMA has a very, it's a very, it's a Western sport, even though it's developed in Brazil. It's really it's become very westernized in the sense where it's like what well, you do but says for you, yeah. you know. And in MMA, like that that hierarchy we're describing of like respect for the master does not exist in MMA. And the hierarchy goes the fighter, the better you get, you are, and the more you get paid, the higher you go up the hierarchy. Hey, coach, I'll let you get five seconds of TV time in exchange for you training me, you know. That or like sometimes they don't even pay the coaches. Or and if the coach tells the fighter what he's going to do and challenges him, off you go. You know, so it's a very different kind of culture, and one of these, one of these, uh, 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 one one thing that is that is so it's like uh, uh, blasphemous in BJJ is leaving the gym, yeah. like and everyone's been through this. Whereas, like in wrestling or MMA, if you go from camp A to camp B, I get the impression no one gives two shits and life just goes on and that's that. And if we end up fighting with your old teammates, that's just life and it's professional. Whereas, like it's it's. Talk about that. How do you feel about this? I want to hear how you feel because, like, I, I, I've been on both sides of that fence. So I want to, you know, I'm, I'm 50 50 on I understand things from both perspectives. Um, have you had experiences with Creon students or yourself? Uh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I suspect we're going to agree on this. I think that we're going to be somewhere close to, you know, agreeing on this. So I'll tell you first off, yeah. like, the term Creonchi is actually, I, I looked it up, Wikipedia. According to Wikipedia, it's created by Car Master Grandmaster Carlson Grace. So he invented the word. I knew yeah. it. I was right because well, he, that word doesn't exist in the in the well, it's vocabulary. It's not a word so much. It was a name from a soap opera. It was okay. Some, it was a Brazilian soap opera, and the character okay. was a guy who switched allegiances and backstabbed people all the time. Okay. So he does. So he just borrowed it. He just borrowed the name of that character yeah. called Crianchi, and now that's Carlson's known for like assimilating words for other things and implementing them to BJJ. Carlson Gracie Junior. Uh, uh, Carlson Gracie, a senior. Just had a statue built for him in Rio de Janeiro, yes. like a, like a bronze statue, absolutely beautiful. He created another word he got from uh, uh, cockfighting, from like rooster fighting. Okay, uh, it was mutuka. Mutuka is that that rooster that doesn't want to fight. Like when the time comes, he's like, die right here," and then he goes the last second and goes like, "I want to get out of here." You know, That's funny. That's so mutuka. So he like in, in BJJ, like everyone uses the term mutuka all the time yeah. for someone who's scared of fighting. Yeah. 
I think very few people know that Carlson Gracie actually introduced that word into the the, the BJJ vocabulary. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah but with uh, so going back to Grianchis. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think anybody who's had a gym for any length of time, like one yeah. month or two months, <laughs> yeah, has had that happen to him, right? And uh, I actually wrote a, a little blog about this, but I see, I can understand from the coach's standpoint, like how it feels, yeah. and but the students often have don't get it, right? Particularly here in the U.S. because, like you said, it's very Western in the sense that they think, well, it's a service-based business. Yeah, exactly. I come in, I pay for something, exactly. I get training, I walk out, right? It's like if you're walking into McDonald's, you no longer like this McDonald's, you go to Wendy's the next day and that's yeah. that. It's a yeah, business yeah. transaction solely. Yeah. And, you know, in other sports, people switch teams all the time and yeah. there's not nearly as much uh, uproar. I mean, yeah. yeah, sure, people get upset when LeBron moves from yeah. Miami or somewhere, but it's not like a giant stigma as yeah. it is like in certain schools you leave and there you got like a scarlet letter on your yeah. back you know what i mean like everybody hates you now yeah. oh he's a traitor or whatever so i think that's misplaced but i can understand from both sides so like from the coach's angle first of all i would never call like a a casual student a career you know? yeah someone who's coming in once or twice a week trains, no. and he goes it, it, i mean that that, that student's he, he, goal is just to make their life better right so whether yeah. that means getting them in better shape learning self-defense confidence, fun, yeah. and ultimately you're trying to get them to the black belt and develop that black belt mentality yeah that's your goal for them and if they if they can't accomplish it with you and they go somewhere else all right i mean it is what it is you know normally when you hear it is usually when someone who's a star pupil right or someone you've invested there's a an lot emotional more attachment that's the real problem right yeah yeah because you, you you develop this because of the amount of time you put it and most people don't don't get that either because from the athlete standpoint a coach is a resource right like i'm coming to him to learn and to get trained and to get better he's a resource whereas from the coach's standpoint a lot of times they see the athlete as like an extension of themselves like they're like it's like an extended family. Yeah. Like I'm putting in my heart and yeah, soul. Yeah, it becomes like guy. a son to you. Like and, and a lot of people I see is a like I've had it myself. It's like it's a father son relationship yeah. type thing going on. You know, because people don't realize you're you're putting more time and training with these guys. Probably about anywhere from two to four hours, depending on, on what you're doing. You're helping them with their diet, getting weight cut plans. You're traveling with them all over the country or the world. Yeah. You know, you're doing press events with them. Uh, whenever they have little mini dramas or whatnot, which yeah. are going to happen, you're going to be there to resolve this issue. So it's like being a parent. You know, yeah. if you're coaching someone who's a professional or aspiring to be one, you're sinking in a lot of time. And the thing is, as a coach, you're in the more vulnerable position oh. because if that person leaves, all the time and effort you put into them leaves with them. Yeah. Whereas as an athlete, you absorbed all yeah. the lessons and you get to move on. Yeah. You know, so it's it's a losing relationship for the coach. It's a risky relationship. Yeah. With the, the it's, coach. it's an investment. Yeah, it it's is a an huge investment. investment. Yeah, you know, so like my mind on this is that there's pretty much five reasons why someone would switch camps. Right? One, he moved. You can't help that, right? Guy moves to Colorado. I can't say, hey, you got to fly here every day and train. Like that's silly. Like okay, well, like, you should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you were committed, you would. Right? But uh, so I mean, it is what it is. Two, there's some type of drama with the coach, yeah. right? Like they got into some personal beef. That's going to mess things up. Or three, drama with other students or other athletes. Yeah. That could cause problems as well. Yeah. Four is the one that uh, if 
the coach or the student feels they've exhausted the resource of the coach. Like they've learned everything they had to offer him or now they know better than the coach or that the training is no longer adequate. That's uh, a reason they move. And the fifth final reason, financial. Yeah. Whether they can't afford to train or they're getting incentives to train somewhere else. For, yeah. Boom, that might make a move. So these are pretty much the five reasons someone moves. I, I, I agree. I think that, yes, you're, you're spot on. And like just going back to something you were saying, I think that one reason why someone becomes a career is there's normally an emotional attachment there because everyone always goes like, oh, I'm paying, I'll do whatever I want. But what the student doesn't see a lot of times, yeah, you're paying a membership or not. Normally, the coaches don't pay a membership. That's part of the problem. But um, if they're paying a membership, you think, oh, I pay, I go wherever I want. But like what they don't see is that the coach goes well beyond what he's supposed to do. You know, when, when we corner students at tournaments as a coach, you're not getting paid for that. Your, yeah. your coach is doing you a favor. When your coach goes to you to a tournament and he corners students for 12 hours straight, that is not in your contract. If some gym has that in the contract, I've never heard of that. But like that is not in your agreement. Like that is not your coach's obligation. He's doing it because he likes you. That is a favor, and as a student, you should be thankful because he's given his weekend away for you. Oh, it promotes your school. No, it doesn't. Yeah. I have a school. No one cares. No one cares if you won an Aga belt, man. I'm serious. Like it doesn't it doesn't change my life, man. Yeah, I used to yeah. have guys back in the day, and they were fighting like in yeah. regional promotions, and they're like, man, I put my my the flag for the team. Yeah, I'm like, man, there's not one person that's ever joined the gym because yeah. they saw you fight. And, and it's you a know? personal satisfaction. Yeah. Right? For example, if I see my students win, I get satisfied. Like, I've been on the verge of tears watching some of my students win because I was so happy for them. But that's my payment. Yeah. It's the satisfaction of watching them win. Yeah. Like financially, there's no, unless they're like fighting in the UFC making millions of dollars yeah. and you have a contract, which most people don't have with their coaches so they don't get paid. Yeah. It, there's no, there's no reward, but in the student's head, I've literally, like, I mean, so I've heard, I've heard it referred to as ROI, yeah. like ROI students, like return on the, you know, I've heard that term thrown oh, around before. God. Like, it doesn't work that way, yeah. man. Like, it, it's, it's not like if you're good, that's great and everything, but that because there's an investment, this is where the kriyontaji, that the resentment comes from, because I've been on both sides of that fence, is that you know you have you have on one end you have a highly committed coach who spreads himself thin takes time away from his family. I've done that. I've had wars with like my ex-wife over like students that I was giving my time to. And she's yeah. like, they're not paying you. Like F them. And she was right. You know, but like I go at the time, I was like so emotionally invested. Like I want them to win. And, you know, so there is resentment for the coach on that end. And there's the other side of the story. Sometimes a student, I mean, if they move or financial to me, I think the financial, generally speaking, is like the least common of the problems. Because like, I don't know how poor you are. Like you could probably put a hundred bucks together, hundred twenty bucks at the end of the month. And if you walked up to your coach, coach, I only have eighty bucks this month, but I'll clean the mats for you every day. I think most gyms would probably agree to that. So to me, that's like the least common of all the the five things you gave. Probably does happen though. I'm sure it happens. But like uh, the moving one doesn't even count. But like when it when it comes down to the student, um, like not getting the the training in, I've been in that boat. Like I've uh, I, I've gone to I'm you know I've gone to gyms where. For example, one gym that I left, I've left, I'm known as a Creole team in Brazil, in case you want to, like, yeah, I've been called a Creole team my whole life, but I've always had a good reason, and I believe I did the right thing every time. So um, the first time I remember, like, the gym only taught jiu-jitsu three times a week. I'm in competition mode, man, like, three times a week is not enough for me. I'm going to train twice a day, and I offer the coach, can I teach class the other two days so I can train five days a week? I'll teach for free. It was a purple belt at the time, like, I would like to teach BJJ for free. So I can train five days a week. No, 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 this is my gym. This is only going to be, like, he was like, 
it was like to tell me this is how you're going to train with three. Like, I, I'm not going to do this. So I leave. I left again after a while because it was a difficult moment in that particular gym where I loved the guys. I had no issues with them. But everyone was either moving or injured or not training with me. I was like a world champion at the time, and I was left training with white belts. So it's, I didn't have – every now and then I'd have like a good purple belt to roll with, you know. But it got to the point where like I didn't have training partners to, to – to, to challenge me it just wasn't happening this went on for months and then i'm like i gotta go you know and i but like both times like i sat down with my coach and i had a very adult discussion with him why i was leaving it was not personal i love him. thank you for everything but i'm this is the reason why i'm leaving you know and i think that's one thing that a lot of students miss is that you know like i think that the right thing to do is to look your coach in the eye and tell him why you're leaving because yeah. if you have a leg to stand normally and people have done that to me Maybe once or twice. Yeah, normally, great. they kind of sneak out because they, they know they don't. Ashamed, yeah. They don't know how they don't have a leg to stand on, right? And when they don't have a leg to stand on, they don't have arguments. Like the only thing to do is like kind of like, and they, you know, which I have no issues with. Like the the, cra- the part that drives me nuts is when they try to spin it on me like I'm the bad guy. Like no, 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 no. You weren't man enough to even you couldn't even have the balls to tell me what the reason why you left, right? And that's where that resentment comes from. But I I left uh, um, and I one time I left the coach because he was losing his mind. Uh, one time, and one time it was just like I was tired of like the lack of, you know, organization, professionalism, the team, and I just wanted to, you know, do my own thing. But like I managed to maintain good relationships with all these guys. Like I can go back to Brazil, any of the schools I, I trained at, and they'll greet me with a hug. And I think it's that's it's a hard thing to do, but I, I yeah. like I think it's important that even though you don't train with your instructor, that you maintain a positive relationship because. At the end of the day, I, they did something for you. For sure. And, yeah, the, and, part, and even it's not, maybe it wasn't what you wanted. Maybe it wasn't what you expected. Maybe you had a very high expectation of what a coach owes you, right? But a coach did something for you. And for that reason, like, I think a student ought to be respectful. Regardless of what you train, you should always be, like, thankful. Yeah. No, 100%. Everybody that's, that's part of your martial arts journey, whether you left them or not, is part of who you are. You can't pretend that that era of your time doesn't exist. You know, um, myself, I've actually stayed with every coach I've had until they moved away. And it's happened with my wrestling coach. I actually moved uh, cities. So I was supposed to go to a different high school. But I didn't want to leave my coach hanging. So I ended up driving an extra hour. Or actually, I didn't have a driver's license back then. So my brother... Would drive me an extra hour to go to school and come back, and I had to put that I was living at my grandma's house so that I could still go to that high school in Miami because I was living in Fort Lauderdale. But uh, and it would have been easier for me to be in the other place because it wasn't as competitive as a regional tournament, so it would have been easier to get to states. But I wanted to stick with my coach because I felt like I owed him everything, you know. And uh, when I started training MMA, I was with my coach Randy, but then he moved after a couple of years. And since then, this has been me and my brother. So really, I haven't been coached by like a senior for long, maybe like four years total. And then everything else is just like grappling magazine, DVDs, yeah. VHS tapes. So from my perspective, I've always, like I've given a lot from my, my athletes. I've had people live in my house. So I know you've done the same thing. I have people who I'd make meals for them. I had six at one point. <laughs> yeah. So we do Don't that. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. It's a mistake, right? And I'll tell you why, because the main problem people have in relationships, yeah. or one of the main problems, yeah. 
is they make assumptions. Yeah. Right. And as a coach, I assume that when I take you in under my wing and I'm going to let you sleep in my house and get you sponsors and all that, like you see me as a family member and we're like, we're like a, a strong team yeah. that we're it, going, it's, we're, it's similar to a father son relationship. It's very similar yeah. to father son. That's a whole other discussion because yeah. I noticed most people who do fighting professionally do not have a father figure. It's and a very common thing. It's a very common theme. And essentially the structure is coming from that coach. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's actually parents bring their kids to martial arts because they need discipline. Yeah. Right. It's one of the key things. So that bonding relationship can get funny sometimes. Right. Like uh, I had a guy that again, was living in my house. We found him sponsors. We gave him jobs. And uh, he eventually got. A I know that guy too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> eventually Two of them. we got him a big fight, and he, he needed to get medical bills paid yeah. to to fight. I, I fronted the money out of my pocket. It was like four grand or something like that. And like, oh, with the money you make from the fight, pay me back. All right, wins his fight, disappears. Go to a different gym. Yeah. Goes to a different gym, and then I was like, did he just leave the gym just because he didn't want to pay me back? Yeah. But it turns out there was more to it. My, my brother at the time, where the gym was starting to do well, he got himself a new car. And uh, the guy was talking crap. He's like, how can Master Marcos get himself a car, a new car, when he knows I don't have a car yet? Yeah. And then I was like, what? Yeah. yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> right? It's not. So like, the yeah. relationship can get funny, but it's because everybody was making assumptions on both sides of what roles we're going to play in this relationship. Yeah. And they need to be ironed out. You yeah. know, so like what you're talking about before, if you're gonna be a pro, you should be writing out a contract, right? You should and, be stating out like and this is what I'm doing, this is what you're expected to do, you know, these are the things I'm not doing, you know. That way there's no ambiguity. And you might say, Oh, but how come we can't just trust each other? Like it doesn't because, work. Because it, everybody it, has, not, not yeah. see, like some people are worthy of trust. Like some people like a handshake means the world to them. Like I I feel like I'm that guy. But not everyone operates like that because what happens is you create gray area. Yeah. In gray area is where bullshit thrives. Yes. You know, you can't, the, the trick in life, I've come, I'm coming to learn at a very late age, is that you have to make that gray area as narrow as possible until it disappears because that's when you're going to have all the problems. And when you have this buddy-buddy relationship or we're family, then people always create expectations. That's the gray area, right? Yeah. And those expectations are always not always on the same page. So, like, there's uh, I, one thing I'm doing now at the gym. I'm writing a manual for students. I have manuals for my instructors that we're writing, manuals for parents, and for students. So when the student signs up, he has his hand on a manual. These are the rules of the gym. Yeah. Because I think that right there gets rid of a lot of the gray area because now they know what to expect. Because the student, the professor always assumes loyalty. Yeah. And the, the students all the time say, I'm going to do what's best for me. Because there's that me attitude that going back to that cultural difference that we're describing, like that has become so prevalent in, in MMA and, and is becoming more in BJJ, like what's best for me, me, me. And I get that, but like where does that individuality starts crossing over with your morals? Yeah. Where is it, where is like, there's a moment there, I'm like, okay, me, 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 but this guy did a lot for me. Is it okay to dump this person who's helped me my whole life because the decision I'm gonna make next, it benefits me. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Where is that line between what's best for you, but also your morals? And I think those lines are getting blurry in, in a lot of times in these discussions. And it's a complicated one. I go, I go case by case. Like I don't, 
But uh, I don't condemn people for leaving for better training. I condemn people for leaving for vanity reasons. Like that, right? I have issues with that. Like yeah. if you're going to be just because I've literally had, I'm not making this up. I've literally had people walk up to me and tell me that uh, they wanted to get, I know the reason why they were leaving is because they wanted me to promote them and make them, no, they wanted special treatment and privilege. Yeah. I'm quoting here. And then I goes, what is privilege? And they go, I want you to promote me and make me famous. Because he knew I hated that. So yeah. he said it. Like he was honest at least. Like I just want to be famous. And I'm like, okay, that's what you train jujitsu for. Well, you're in the wrong place. Like it was that kind of sort of thing because even though I appreciate the honesty, I feel that it's it's the wrong reason. And I don't want to accommodate that. Yeah. So in that case, it's kind of like one of those things where like we have very different Vision. visions yeah. of what we're going here, and it's it's better that we part ways. Yeah. yeah. No, and so like we I've talked a lot from the students, I mean from the coach side, but yeah, from the student side, it's not like the coach can't do no wrong either, right? Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, coaches I've messed up things. a ton. Yeah, yeah. And, there, and there's things that, there's good, I think, reasons for students to move to other gyms as well. Like, kind of like what you highlighted. If you feel like you're on the wrong path or the coach is not helping you in the way you feel like you need to be helped, that might be a time like, well, I might have to switch camps or at least yeah. have a discussion with the coach and then say, I, hey, yeah. what's going on? But a lot of times I think people like to place the blame on somebody for bad performance and just think by moving a problem is going to fix itself yeah you know it's always someone else's fault right it's easier to do that you know so i think you have to be honest with yourself and like is it really because the coach is not showing up to practice and doing all the stuff and he's not bringing his a game or is it because i'm not bringing my a game and i'm not being dedicated in training you know because i've i've had people leave and I, then like they, these are the guys that were coming in like twice a week and they were pro yeah. fighters and they're showing up barely i'm like yeah i mean you failed yourself there you know because i'm and, here every day it's funny is the people that don't listen to you do the least are the ones complaining when they lose i mean you don't trust me you don't listen to me you yeah. barely train <laughs> and now you're complaining that you lose like and it's it's a life it's a life issue too because it affects it's, it's an attitude problem yeah it affects everything you do in life because i one lesson i learned from BJJ, bjj early on um it was that if i lose it is my fault yes Okay, maybe the ref is 1% responsible. Maybe my coach is 1% responsible. It's, it's max 1%. The other, like, 95% of it falls on you, man. Why are you worried about the weather? Why are you blaming the slippery mats? Why are you blaming? I mean, you can blame them slippery mats. You can blame the ref, but you can't change the ref. Why are you worried about it? You worry about things you can change. What's immediately uh, 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 available for you to change. What's funny, because, like, a lot of, I've heard that, like, people complaining and blaming, like, the style of training or whatever. And then, like, meanwhile, all his teammates are winning. And he's the only one losing. Like, if everyone's winning, you're the one losing. Like, what's the common denominator? It's clearly not the training, you know? Yeah. Um, but, like, there's – it's it's uh, it's it's something that people need to fix. I think we all need to fix because it really holds you back. Oh, it sure. stops you from progressing. The second you're blaming the world and not yourself, like, well, how do you progress? You can't because no, you're powerless. Stuck. You're powerless. You're given the power Thank away you. to the world. You know Thank I mean? you. It's a great way to put it. You're powerless. It's exactly what's happening. That's why I always say, like, I believe in self-responsibility. Yeah, accountability. Yeah. Self-accountability, exactly. Taking everything that happens in your life is your fault. Yeah. And it's the most empowering thing you can do for yourself. It's depressing in a way because you put your sober. Yeah, yeah, fuck. I, it's, it's always like me, but it's the only way yeah. you you may you, you solve the problem. Yeah. yeah, because otherwise, if it's oh, it's Robert's fault. Well, I can't make Robert do anything, so now I'm a victim. 
Yeah, it's, I, it's the victim mentality. Yeah, yeah. And I don't like. That is idea. it getting worse? Yeah. I feel like I'm getting worse. I don't know. Like, maybe I'm more. I'm more like sensitive to it. Like, I see it so much, man, yeah. and it's always something else. And I don't know. Like, I think be, if you get caught in the triangle, you can blame your coach. But at the end of the day, the next time you train, it is you and your will and your commitment to not putting yourself in that triangle that's going to stop you from getting triangled again. Yeah, you know, it really it comes down to that, man. Like, I think that's. Probably ninety nine percent of the equation. Yeah. Okay, so so if we we wrap back around to the Creonch, I would say I would never tell people call that guy out as a Creonchi if he left the team or yeah. name call him or make him feel bad or whatever. That's silly. That's immature. Too. You, know, you could be upset about it as a coach, like if someone leaves you and all that. But at the same time, there's things that you could have done to. Per- protect yourself from this like what yeah. we discussed right like if students are leaving because there's drama in the gym that's your bad because you're the one you're the head of the of the the culture yeah. and if you're not every so often a bad seat comes in and you have to pluck it out or you have to fix problems if you're not guard if you're not keeping that culture clean yeah it's that's on you you know yeah and uh and some coaches are not training enough themselves and remember we had uh, a long time ago we had uh, one of our instructors we had a bunch of instructors he would never spar and we're like, man, you got to do some sparring. Like, you're not, and he wasn't like doing any of the classes. He would just show up, teach and leave. And it's like, you got to put yourself out there because he was teaching some clown like stuff like that wouldn't work, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you got to put yourself out there and, and improve yourself. If you're not educating yourself as a coach, you are going to fall out of date. That's... And, and, your, and your students are very well justified to say, hey, man, like, we're stagnating here. And that is one of the most, I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the most difficult things, difficult things to do as a coach is keeping up with everything. I've always had a policy of like doing like what I call, like I'll focus on the middle because you ha- I have students that only want to do berry bowl yeah. and I have students that only want to do leg locks. I have students that only want to do self-defense and I have students that only want to like train the gi, but they only want to be on top. Like and the, all these different like subgroups of like, what I teach, right? If I put all my focus on one thing, right, I'm going to lose all the other ones. Yeah. I, I, so yeah, I have to make an effort to please the center. But again, like, like how, where is that? You have to, it's very difficult to find a balance when you, because you just become so big. It's like, it's, it's becoming like, like little, like mini cultures of like different styles. Oh, yeah. and, and it's, and as a coach, I try to be in the center as much as possible because I'm trying to please the biggest audience possible. Uh, but then you get resentment of people like, oh, we're not doing enough lapel sweeps. I'm like, yeah, there's like three people in a group of 30 who can do a brain ball or a lapel sweep. I'm like, I can teach class for three people and lose 27. Yeah. Or I can teach class for 30 people and do something that maybe you, know, you don't want to do. And then you can focus on your own specialties on the side. Because as a coach, my job is to focus on the group and not on you, superstar. You know, because yeah. that's like the mentality. But like, it's a very difficult balance to find between between keeping up with the evolution of the sport and also like looking at 99% of your clientele yeah. or your students who don't come to the gym for that. They come to the gym for a completely different reason. No, and it, like you said, the sport is evolving rapidly and there's so much to cover. Like I remember like in the 90s, half guard was such an easy position. Yeah. <laughs> now yeah. you got deep half, the yeah. guard, guard yeah. and all this other stuff going on. So it's like just that one position alone there's so many sub specialties that you could focus yeah. on, you know. But again, to me as a coach, I feel that's kind of the job. Like you're, yeah. I'm like 
It's just study. Yeah, I study. I you go study, on YouTube. Yeah. I watch matches. I see what people do. I um, try to incorporate whatever. I, I like. Uh, um, I mentioned this before, but like, I I, I really want to do statistics on BJJ one day because I have like a, a like an idea of what's going to happen just from my observations, and it's important that people observe. The interesting thing about like finding out where the sport is going is people have like a laser like you know focus on things that are either a unknown. Or they have never seen before, or yeah. like, or very like aesthetically pleasing, right? And that's great and everything. But a lot of times, what that does, it overlooks the reality of what is happening. So a flashy takedown. Oh my! I really got to learn that one. And then, like, if you show a single in class, everyone's like rolling their eyes. I already know that one was the number one takedown. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like little things like that. As a coach, it's 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 uh, uh, it's something you have to be very very careful with, like not not losing track of what is actually efficient and important versus, you know, what is it that, you know, your students really want to learn. Yeah. Because a lot of times what they, people, sometimes they want the garbage. Oh, yeah. I remember teaching a private, I won't say where, it was one of the first privates ever yeah. taught in my life. I'll never forget this. And this guy wanted to learn, like he started a private like this, right? Like, I, I want to learn some dark jujitsu. I have no idea what he's talking about. You know? I'm like, I'm like fresh black belt. I'm like one of my first private, maybe, maybe my first private ever. I'm like, so like some dark jujitsu. I'm like, I don't, I, I should have asked him to define dark jujitsu, but like, I just went like, oh, I'm going to show him my best stuff. But my only reaction was like, I'm going to show him my best stuff. So I showed him some really cool, like, you know, hand fighting tricks, back takes, some good show, like sneaky stuff, like yeah. the, the good details. And this goes on for the first 30 minutes, right? And then he's just like, I can see he's not liking it, you know. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what to, this guy's a beginner, right? But I don't know. What, I, don't, I don't know what else to show. Maybe it's too complicated. I don't know. To make it simple, he wasn't liking it. And then at one point, he stops the private, like maybe like halfway through, and he goes like, "Rob, what if someone attacks you and your girlfriend?" I'm like, "Well, I'll be like, try to put myself between me and her. Maybe get her to run if possible. Depends if he's armed or not. I'm just going with the most reasonable, rational decisions for me to make in that situation. Yeah. What if it's in a dark alley and you can't run?" And I'm like, well, in that case, I'd hit the guy and, like, take him down and protect her and, you know, do this and that. And he's like, well, what if there's, like, what if you're in a dark alley and there's no way to run and you're surrounded by four men and all four of them are judo black belts? I'm like, what? What? When is this? What are four black, judo black belts? <laughs> when is this? What situation is this happening? And that's when it clicked, man. Like, this guy just wanted me to bullshit him. Like, he just wants to, like, the crap, the nonsense. Like, give him my best stuff and he's just like, pfft. I don't want to look at that. So I just started making, I literally started making stuff up. Like I'd be like this and then this and then that and just like knocking all of them out like with like all these bullshit moves and he loved it. Yeah. It's like, it's like he had this like Shaolin kind of like, you know, old Kung Fu movies kind of vision of how a fight took place. Yeah. And he, that. that's kind of what he wanted and that's what, that's what he meant by dark jujitsu, I'm assuming. And there's a little bit of that in the BJJ community, I feel like sometimes. There's a lot of like people that you, you they, they don't, they prefer like the the nonsense the trick moves. The yeah, like, it's not that it's yeah. not important, but it's like it's like one percent of the equation. Like, yeah. Why are you not looking at the big numbers? You know, and exactly. Yeah, because yeah. excitement takes prevalence over you know efficiency. Sometimes, I guess. Yeah, you want statistically, you want to do the moves that are the most common that work well. Yeah. You know, because I mean, Marcelo Garcia yeah. was an arm drags, right? Rear naked yeah. chokes. They're not fancy, but it works. Roger Gracie literally yeah. made a career out of choking everyone. If all with that choke, that if you if I showed in my even my white boat to look at that choke and go like roll their eyes like oh this is so boring you know but he basically mount people and go boom boom and it's a cross it's, it's it's the first choke you learn one of the first chokes you learn in BJJ and 
and it's, I'm not saying that that you know you should stop doing everything to focus on, but like it does say something about um, I don't like old and new. I like like efficient versus non efficient. Yeah. And I like to focus on high percentage moves. To me, an intelligent class, an intelligent curriculum is focused on high percentage moves above all. That's the it's a hierarchy. Sure. I don't like to use best and worst, but yeah. like there's a hierarchy of you know like the most efficient down the ranks, and I think your 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 investment goes accordingly. Yeah, because you want to put yourself in a position where you can execute moves. Yeah. Like uh, when I was coming up with the whole Kimura trap system thing, it was because that last ACC then in 2007 where I, I grappled you and Zanji, I did like, uh, it was like 60 minutes of grappling for four matches. Because yeah. I was getting overtime left and right, triple overtime, <laughs> overtime, double yeah. overtime. Yeah. I'm like, I need to finish people because yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm running a marathon where everybody else is doing a sprint. Yeah. So I'm like... What? And I started thinking back to my wrestling days, game yeah. plans. I'm like, all right, what's the submission that I could hit from the most positions? Yeah. And then to me, Kimura. Yeah, that's true. So like, why would I focus on doing like flying triangle? Which I can only do it for my feet. And I could get really good. Beautiful move. Yeah, beautiful move. But yeah. like, it's a limited use case, right? Yeah. Whereas Kimura, I could do literally everywhere. Yeah. So if I have a really good Kimura, I could, I'm dangerous all over the place. All over you know what yeah. I mean? So like, common move, but just very efficient. And I can execute from everywhere, you know. So I, I agree with you there. Like basic stuff usually works well because it's basic, so it implies yeah. it's simple to set up and execute. But most people are like, oh, it's ba if a white belt can do it, that means it's not good. Like no, no, it means it's that good. The technique is so efficient that even someone with a very basic understanding can do it to you. Yeah. Right. Like to me, basic means powerful. Yeah. A complex move requires someone with extreme technical knowledge to be able to execute it so yeah. it's a, like you said very limited use case and and it what's interesting to me like the thing is like goes back to that laser like focus i was talking about so you watch let's say you watch a highlight of let's say mike mutsumessi and you know joao miao going at it right like the highlight shows like what is not the reality of it that showed like the very like compartment or yeah. aspects of the match but if you really pay attention like the most, no matter who you think of like the most the most technical grappler in the world if you look at what he's doing, about I would say about 95% of what they do is extremely simple. And then there's a 5% who's more sophisticated, but it stands out. Yeah. The thing is the 5% stands out. If you just grab the collar and like shift your weight to your hip this way so you don't fall over to your right, it's so simple that most people don't even notice. So yeah, yeah, of course. But he's doing it. Yeah. So, but like it doesn't stand out. It does, there's no story for that. Right? It's only the one thing that no one's ever seen before, for example, or like whatever is aesthetically pleasing that, that makes, that takes some, you know, that, that, makes, that makes noise, like, so to speak. Um, and I'm very observant of these things because, you know, you don't want to ignore, uh, you, want to pay, you want to look at the whole picture, is what yes, I'm saying. Not yes. just like the whole, looking at the whole picture is actually very, very important. That's why highlights receive. I had a rule when I fought, I never watch highlights of my opponents. Ever watch, don't watch highlights if you're an opponent. Don't do it because it messes you out. It's like, if you know, it'll be like, oh man, that guy's so good. It makes people look so much better than they are, than they actually are, you know. Yeah. So, careful with those. And I think going back to that, those basic fundamental moves, my goal is to try to make a basic move more complex by noticing the smaller details, right? Yeah. Like someone like Roger Gracie with his cross choke. Probably has some nuggets of knowledge. I'll give you one. I know. I yeah. felt that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that he's able to pull on yeah. that most people don't know. But the move is so efficient that you could do it poorly and yeah. still finish people. Yeah. But if you know every moving part, 
it becomes fatal, you know? If you're tapping world-class black belts with it over and over, you probably figure something out. There's yeah. something. And like, I remember this vividly, man, because I, I, I use this now. I learned this like being on the other end. But um, first hand goes in. The second hand goes, I have my face down like everyone does, right? And it's always difficult to get that second hand in because the face is down. And then like Roger, like I remember like he's got his forearm underneath his cheekbone. And there was so much pressure on my cheekbone this way that it was lifting my jaw. Mm. And it was so it was hurting so much. Like if I don't move my jaw, like I felt like this this guy was going in, like it was yeah, if I was gonna break my face. If i it was I remember vividly, it was very painful here. And that's when I lifted my chin oh, and found my neck. And I realized what he was doing. He was doing something that is not illegal. Yeah. It's like frowned upon in BJJ, which to me is like another peeve of mine. If it's not illegal, what's the matter? Yeah. You know, like I put my face there. Yeah. Who's responsible for that? Him? He's not responsible for my face. Yeah. I put my face in front of the choke. Yeah. That's me. If I don't care about my face, why should he care? Exactly. We're in the final of the world here. Like, who cares? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I put my face down, and then he's like, all right, you, I can either lift your jaw or I'm going to break your cheekbone. I'm like, okay, you can have my neck. <laughs> yeah. You know, but that's, that's BJJ. But it's like such a, it's a basic detail. Yeah. But you don't learn that. It's simple, but you don't learn that. If not from experience, I no one ever taught me that. You know, yeah. like it's one of those things that I'm sure he developed, or maybe someone taught him. But it was, um, it's simple. Yeah, you know? and, and it's just learning and practicing more and noticing little details. Like for me, and now I've been teaching the Kimura for so long; it's like 13 years or so. That it gets better every time because yeah. my understanding of the move increases as I understand where leverage is. Yeah. And, and how to place it like the first release of my my dvd is a little bit outdated and that's why i put those updates in because now the newer understanding is way better like your iphones get, get updates yeah yeah you gotta add those updates <laughs> and you gotta tweak the moves but yeah. like it's taking again something that's simple and like how do we make this more efficient or yeah. like i say make a simple move complex right so that we add more moving parts to it but each moving part we add increases the leverage efficiency, increases yeah. the efficiency and that's what most people don't get because if I sh most people get the ballpark like the you know if I glance at a painting real quick look away tell me what you saw I'm like oh, okay I can name a few details but the guy who has a real understanding can tell you everything about the painting yeah the colors the technique who was the painter the canvas is on he understands every moving part like it's the back of his hand you know so that's the type of understanding I feel specialist game. There's a, someone like Roger Gracie, I'm sure he's got like a million little tricks from that cross stroke he does, yeah. you know, or Marcelo Garcia with the arm drag, you with the dart stroke, you know, Bravo, yeah. you know, like there's stuff that you do that when you were teaching Bravo, I hadn't seen anybody else do. I'm like, oh crap. Yeah. Yeah. But that comes from people who work on something for so long, even if it's basic. And, and, and more so than it and, is. Yeah, and, and I thought I'm such a huge fan of experience, man. Like I'm very suspicious of people that learn through observation only because like I, I, I will this, I, we've all done this. You're in bed before you go to bed and you're thinking about moves, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you think of a move. And I'm like, got it, right? And then I've made, I've, I'm not proud of this, but I've made the mistake of actually showing that move in practice. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly dishonest and stupid. And like, I, I've, I've done it like maybe once, but like, it's, you have to test it. Okay, that's great. You thought of your theory. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, like, let's put it in practice, right? And then when you put it to the test, chance like nine out of 10, it doesn't work. And it's true because you're not factoring all these. You don't see what you don't see. Yeah. I call you that know, dream jiu-jitsu. Yeah, it's dream jiu-jitsu. It's yeah. like the unknown, unknown. You don't know what's going to happen when you react this way. Like, I would say about, I've come up with a lot of moves you have to, we all have, right? I would say maybe not 90, more like 100% of the stuff I've come up with 
came up when I was trying to do something. I'm trying to do A. You block A, I end up with B. Or maybe you block B, I go to C. And I do something in the, in the heat of battle that works really well. And then I'm like, oh, man, that's a good move. And I start doing it more and more. And now I'm like trying to break it down. And next thing you know, then I explain it in class. Yeah. And a lot of times you explain it in class, you understand it better. It's funny, the other day I come up with a move. And I'm like, that's a great move, you know. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I just started start doing it the other day. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's an old wrestling move. I'm like, huh? <laughs> that's happened a few times. I come up like, and I think I came up with it. It's like, it's something that's existed for forever. But uh, even the Dars, I thought I came up with the Dars, actually. <laughs> I really did. Because I started doing it in Brazil. I'd never seen it before. Mm -hmm. I started doing it accidentally. I was going for the Bravo choke. That's where the name came from. The Bravo choke, right? Yeah. And the half guard was killing people with it in the gi. And I was training no gi. Like, I was looking for that lapel and I couldn't get it. And one day I just went... You know, and that was Bravo Choke originally. And then I later found out there's a guy in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Dars, I think his name is, yeah, yeah. yeah he, he, he came up with the move before, I guess. And he, uh, and he was, he, the setup was completely different. But um, I just go with Dars because it's just easier. Yeah. But, um, yeah, man. But, like, I think from my experience, like, the, the, these, these innovations, they come from practice and failure. More often like, than yeah, not, like I've had a few dream dream jujitsu moves that actually worked out. Yeah. Like I would No, I believe that. Yeah. yeah. But it's like you said, it's very a lot of times what you come up with doesn't work right. You're like, yeah. oh, you know what? The grip is not gonna work or something. Something you know? goes wrong. Yeah. yeah. But it's like whatever. It's just a shot in the dark. Like yeah. we'll see if it works or not. But yeah, usually is when you recognize opportunities when you're when you're yeah. rolling. You're like, Whoa, this is something that I never noticed until today. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's because you, you get you, you get a reaction that you're not used to. And you have to improvise on the spot. Some of the best scrappers I've ever met were people that were geniuses at improvising, improvising at the spot. At the spot. Like they just knew you confront them with a new situation and you don't have to go back to the drawing board or ask yeah. the coach. They just immediately react. Improvise, improvise, improvise. Uh, and, and I think that's very, that's creative. That, that's a fundamental aspect. One reason why I'm so in love with DJ is because it is such a creative art. Yeah. Like I really feel like, you know, rap, it's such a creative art. In the sense where, like, there's always something new, new detail, different way of doing something. There are things that people are doing like that. I, when I started training, were considered to be wrong. They yeah. don't do that now. People are turning it around and making it efficient. You know, I today I taught MMA class. I was teaching my students to cross their feet on the back, yeah. which is like BJJ. Don't do 101. You know, but I argue that in some situations, crossing your feet on the back is the right thing to do. Yep. So long as your opponent doesn't have his butt on the ground, that's the exception. But in other situations, you cross your feet. I cross my feet in arm bars all the time, you know, depending on how my opponent's trying yep. to escape. I was learned never cross your feet. Never is a word I don't like to use in BJJ anymore yeah. because I've been, it's been wrong too many times, you know, like never changes and next thing you know, someone finds an exception. And uh, to me, that's one of the most endearing aspects of BJJ, but... Once again, these things come from primarily from, from practice, man. Like I think that's the, that's the one thing that a lot of people miss. They, I think that the, the, the artificial injection we were talking about, yeah, that, yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. It, it's, it's helpful. It gives you ideas. It opens new doors. But I cannot learn jujitsu from a video, a book. Like it's going to help you open doors, think of things differently. But you're going to learn by, primarily by losing, by failing. Yeah. I think the negative lessons, I call them negative lessons, learning how not to do it is more important than getting it right because it teaches yeah. you how not to do something. It's and, a very and that's important, an important thing. And like I know my brother and I, we used to do a lot of flow rolling sometimes yeah. just to mess around. But yeah. the, the purpose of the flow roll was to learn something new, right? Yeah. So yeah. We, would, we would mess around and we would do things we wouldn't normally do. Like yeah. I'll put myself in a vulnerable position or I'll go for something that I... Yeah. Maybe like I was told not to do that, 
Let me try it. Yeah. What, what happens if I do this thing I'm not supposed to do? And you know, sometimes, you know, there's a reason that you're not supposed to learn that. But other times, like, you know what? There is a good reason to do this. It's just that a lot of times people learn by tradition, yeah. you know, and they don't question the tradition. So then nobody ever advances from it, you know? That's a big one, man. Like, it's funny, because yeah. I, I think I noticed that a lot of people learn by tradition. And the funny thing about these things is the older it is, the more... Yeah. the more of a truism it becomes. Like, oh, it's been, like people have been doing this for 100 years, Rob. Clearly it's correct. I'm like, no. Like, yeah. Just because it's, it finds people have been you know, doing it the hard way for 100 years. And I love to find these. And we find them all the time. Yeah, you know what yeah. you were talking about, yeah. crossing the ankles. I cross the ankles all the time for yeah. the back. I just never put it in front of the hips. Yeah. I put it on the, the side, side there. Yeah. And it works great. You know? Or if you're very flexible, you could cross up really high in the yeah. stomach. You bring it up here and then you can't footlock you. But it's, a, it's like you said, it's understanding why. A lot of people, yeah. they don't get the why. They just said, coach said, don't cross your feet. Like, oh, I guess you never cross your feet ever. Yeah. Like, no, there's a reason why. There's a foot lock. And foot lock only happens when the feet yeah, are by the middle. Hips, you know? yeah. And it's like people, some people are like, oh, you can't submit someone from the close guard. Like, I can from the top. Yeah. There's ways I can do it, you know? Yeah. So, like, a lot of times I try to challenge those things. And, you should. Yeah. And, and I see I, where, it, how true it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because, and the... Sometimes I find that the more taboo it is, the more reward there can be. Because yeah. that means a lot of people will never... Completely unexplored. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't bother me. Oh, no, that's bad. Like, yeah. that, there might be a really good nugget here. Yeah. And, no, you're right. And, and thinking like that is important, man. I, I had a student of mine. This is, it's a funny story to me. But, like, he would, like, he's like a big guy, right? Every tournament, he'd get on top and go inside the closed guard. Ezekiel, boom, finish. Big no-no. Yeah. like, all right, man, good job. Good win. But... Don't do that again, okay? Because, you know, he's going to get your back. He's going to arm bar. He's going to say, okay, coach. Okay, coach. Won't do it. Won't do it. Second fight. Boom. <laughs> Sorry, coach. Sorry, coach. No, it's okay, man. You won. It's okay. Don't do it again. <laughs> you know? Third fight. He wins the whole time. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to stop correcting this guy. Yeah. I wouldn't teach it in class. I don't teach it in class. But if someone's doing something, you can't argue with success. Yeah. Duarte Telly's made a career out of giving his back. Duarte Telly's fairly successful. He's got a lot of people. He's got a lot of titles in Brazil. I have seen, I'm not going to mention names, what he has done to world-class grapplers in the gym. With I'm some big, big names, man. He was tearing them apart, making them look stupid. Yeah, he With the he weirdest game. Unorthodox positions. Unorthodox positions. Guard, yeah. Yeah. Because he's going where no one's ever gone before. Yeah. And I, I don't know how to react. Now, I've never been put in that situation. Right? So now I'm confronted with situations he's very familiar with yep. that I, where, where I am not familiar because like no one ever tried to pull guard by giving me the back. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's an important thing to do, I think. So, like, it's not for beginners. Because <laughs> I, 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 I don't like to give like a white canvas to beginners. Yeah. Uh, I, I, beginners to me are like children. Like, you don't tell your eight-year-old like do whatever you want with your life. Exactly. Like, no, no, no. There's do your homework. Shut up. Do your homework. <laughs> clean your room. You know, like eat your vegetables. But like after a certain age, when you're 18, you're kind of like, I hope I trained you well. Yeah. And off you go. You know. And I say purple belt is that cut off with me, kind of. That's when I start giving them a little more freedom and like letting them develop and create. Yeah, and I had some people ask me, like, because I always tell people, you're a heavy believer in specialization. Yeah. And, like, but, like, when you're a white belt, you can't specialize it. True, because you don't even know what there is. But, like, once you start moving into deeper blues, I think, then there's time where specialization will start yeah. kicking Especially in. for competitors. Yeah, For exactly. competitors, it's, it's, yeah. key. Because yeah. good competitors essentially have a few trick moves, right? They, yeah. they have three or four moves they're really good at, better than everybody else. And then they have a rounded out game, but, like, they're leaning on those strengths. You know? It's not like uh, like we were talking before, everybody wants to learn a new flashy thing or whatnot. And like the white belt fallacy is like, oh, I want to try to learn all these moves I've seen on YouTube. But you're going to suck at all of them because you're spreading out your, 
your, your talent pool. You need to learn the basic game, the positions, how to move around. And once you get that, find out, okay, where is going to be my specialty? It's like in school. You get a degree in one thing. You don't get a degree in math, history, science, all at the same time. Yeah. You don't have enough time. Well, in a competitive yeah. world, here's the thing about that. Like, and I'll probably wrap it up after yeah. that one. But um, in a competitive world, you know, specialization makes sense. You go to a doctor, you have like, you know, some kind of throat infection. You want to go to a specialist. You don't want to go to a guy who's a brain surgeon. You know, yeah. it's you know, if you if, if you need brain surgery, you don't want a guy to want you don't want to go to an OBGYN or an ortho. You know, exactly. I'm sure they have like a fundamental understanding of the brain. Certainly better than me, but you want to go to a specialist, right? Uh, I will say this: so for a coach, I think it's important not to be too specialized. So you give your students the tools because I've seen that too. Guys with amazing half guard, world class half guard. Are they only teaching that? <laughs> and then you see these guys that are like they're not meant for half guard, you know. And then they're in a division where the half guard is not so common, and yeah. they're getting mauled because that's all they've learned. And they oh they don't never they never work, you know, finish submissions from close. But I like to give my beginners at least a fundamental foundation, and then after like I said, after blue purple, it's kind of like. They can specialize and, and but like as a coach, I tried to give a little taste of everything. Yeah. I tried my best for that because that's what your curriculum yeah, is, right? Yeah. You know, like you're giving ballpark, and yeah. then and that's how like most of my guys when they started specializing in stuff is because they went to the curriculum and we're teaching general stuff, and then they found something that clicked with them. Right? Like one of my guys, it was like the first major success story we had when we started doing the curriculum was like in the early 2000s. It was Devin Genchi. That's a crazy guillotine. Like, Unbelievable. As a blue belt, he tapped out black belts with a guillotine in yeah. competition. It's just he had a black belt level proficiency at a, at a guillotine. But the rest of the game was okay, oh, yeah, but yeah. He, if Come. he got you in a guillotine, God yeah. help you. You know what I mean? That, but we, we were just teaching the curriculum, and that one move clicked. And the curriculum kept rotating. We were going new old things, yeah. but he's like, I like this guillotine. I'm just going to spend all my time guillotining people. You know? And I think that's how generally people's game is going to work. And, you know? the, like and, and your, yeah. your job as a coach is not to force something down their throat yeah. necessarily. It's like, you know, here's your vegetables, here's your fruits. And then eventually you're going to yeah. find, oh, I'm a carnivore. Okay, you eat yeah. meat. You know what I mean? Like, you got to give them a little bit of everything. Because otherwise, yeah, then you're forcing everybody to play a particular game. And usually body type is a big factor, like you said. You know, like, if I try to play rubber guard game, I would be a disaster. Yeah. Right? And all the heavyweights I would probably lose. Yeah. You know, so, like, you got to be flexible. With it. No, I 100% I agree. Anyway, Dave, this was a pleasure. This is our episode five. Episode um, five, yep. I hope you guys enjoyed. Um, we'll be mixing it up between me and Dave BS in here, jiu-jitsu and grappling and MMA and just talking fun stuff. And we'll have a guest every now and then. And, uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Dave. Oh, thank this you, This was Robert. a blast. And, um, yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, and make sure you guys follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. <laughs> and if you're on iTunes or the Google Play Store, you can subscribe to our channels there and get the latest updates. See you guys next time. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you want to tune in and make sure you subscribe to all of our episodes, you can join us on iTunes, on the Google Play Store, on Spotify, and on Podbean. And if you want to see the video format of the podcast, make sure you check out our YouTube channel for those videos. And the links to all these platforms are available on our website, which is breakingtheguard.com. Again, that is breakingtheguard.com. And a final word from our sponsors, the Skill Teen Choke Series. 
the guillotine choke series is pretty self-explanatory. It's going for guillotines. And in this course, you're going to learn every possible way to set up a guillotine and how to defend them as well, which is very important. And to me, the guillotine choke is one of those quintessential moves in MMA that you have to know it because it's such an instinctual move. Like whenever someone tries to take you down, even the common, you know, untrained fighter will go for your neck because it's there. But again, what I we've talked about before, basic moves don't imply that they're weak. They actually imply that they're very strong because you need just a very little understanding to be successful with them. So when you have a high level or like a master's level understanding of a basic move, you become a lethal killing machine. And that's the goal of this course with the guillotine choke series. We go over all my favorite setups, counters, sweeps, and pretty much every type of way that you could use a guillotine effectively, I'm going to cover in this course. It's available in both DVD and online streaming formats. And you can learn more about getting free videos by checking out the website, which is guillotinechokes.com. And that's guillotinechokes.com. Again, that's a plural with an S at the end.